Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theater nerds explore the highest highs and the lowest lows of works inspired by that upstart crow himself, Ho William Shakespeare. My name is Megan Charlo, and I use she, her pronouns. My name is Matthew James Marquez, and I use he, him pronouns. Today, we're talking about 2017's A Midsummer Night's Dream, directed by Casey Wilder Mott. This film transposes the world of the play's Athens for a modern-day Los Angeles. This is the first direct adaptation we are talking about on this podcast, direct meaning that the bulk of the work is the original text. The production of this film came about as director Casey Wildermott showed the script to actor Fran Kranz and producer Joshua Skirla. According to an interview on MovableFest.com, which we will post in the show notes, it truly was an independent film. Most of the actors were acquired by showing the script around town, and filming was done within a year, which for a production of this size is ridiculously fast in Hollywood. It's almost like the production was a dream. As you probably can tell, moving right past that, ignoring it. This movie is a direct adaptation of William Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Written in the middle period of his career, Midsummer is a play about love, but unlike Romeo and Juliet, which focuses on a single romantic couple's struggle against ill fate, this work focuses on more light fare, not much focus on the nature of humanity and ponderings. It has as Puck puts it in the play a weak and idle theme. In case you haven't seen it, it's two pairs of couples. One is happily in love. The other is not. They used to be. And now the guy likes the girl who's in the happy couple. And also there's fairies that have their own love troubles. And also there's this group of mechanicals who want to put on this play and they have their own actor troubles. And also the Duke is getting married to this Amazon and they're fine, but they also actually have weird connections to the fairies that have to do with their love troubles. And in the play, there's a baby that the fairies have a problem with. There's a lot of random threads. Not all of them are in this movie. And of course, as this is a Shakespearean comedy, everything gets resolved in the end and everyone's happy. Instead of a tragedy in which everyone is dead. All right, let's get right into the meat. No, because I want to do another Marquez acting corner. Boop 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 boop. That's the theme song for this segment. Megan hates this whenever I do this. I don't know why she hates it. I just want to get into the film. I know, but I love actors. I don't know actors' names. Yes, this is why you don't like this bit, and I like this bit. So just to do a quick rundown of the main cast. Fran Kranz, he is bottom in this production. He was the stoner in Cabin in the Woods. He was Claudio in Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. I like those. Lily Rabe, who plays Helena, has been on multiple seasons of American Horror Story, as well as 
Finn Whitrock, who plays Demetrius. He's also been on multiple seasons of American Horror Story. It's an AHS reunion. Ted Levine played Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. And Leland Stottlemyre from Monk. Who is he in this? Oh, he is Duke Theseus. Avanjogia is Puck in this. He has been the star of Victorious, a kid show, Now Apocalypse, a gay show, and My Heart, a me show. That's not a real thing. I just think he's cute. Rachel Lee Cook, who plays Hermia, is the main role in She's All That. Other cast members include Paz de la Huerta, a famous model and actress in her own right as Hippolyta, and musicians Saul Williams and Mia Doitad as Oberon and Titania, respectively. All right, the movie starts off. Are you sure that we are awake? It seems to me that yet we sleep, we dream, in text on the screen. And I'm like, oh, that's from the play. After that, we cut to a kind of meta-theatrical opening with the clipboard of the movie itself, the one that we are watching, being done with the director's name on the clipboard. So this is something a little bit different than what we're used to on this podcast. I think it's cute, but it also makes me really confused. So is this actually a play or a movie? Are these actors in yes. the within the movie? Are yes. they all actors? Yes. So we cut to a clip show of things to come, like someone saying fi. Someone screaming, fi, a butt face, a necklace of like an arrowhead crystal thing that I'm like, okay. I think this is related to psychedelia, which is, you know, usually caused by drugs and entering a different state of mind, which is a very common interpretation for the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So I think it's probably connected to that, which leads in to my first theory of the film. They are focusing on the filmmaking process as dream. So basically, everything that is involved in making a film is the same as a dream. You cast the dream in your head, you fill it with objects, but ultimately, a film is not real. It is all made up. The first actual bit of the text that we see, besides obviously that opening title card, is Bottom's monologue from when he wakes up from his slumber later in the play. In Titania's Bower. Yes. Yeah. So we're already messing with time and space in, in this and how we can cut things out of place, which is connects to my first thing about filmmaking as a dream is that you're able to do things not in the correct order in filmmaking. Usually films are filmed with scenes not in the correct order because different actors are available at different times. You're not a theatrical production, which requires just the people and the scenes you need. And when you actually perform it for an audience, you perform it unsurprisingly from beginning to end. But with filmmaking, you can insert things in the middle of scenes and stories and text between dialogue that hasn't happened yet. So that buys into my theory. 
And then a really cute thing happens at the very end of his monologue. And it should be called Bottom's Dream, for it hath no bottom, that whole thing. But instead it goes, and it shall be called, and then it goes to just a title card letters over the shot, and it just says A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I'm like, that's the movie! That's yeah. the play! I like that! Yeah, that is the- Megan, you're right. Megan. Is that what plays? Yeah, that's exactly what God. plays. They did it. Then they show some locations and connect them to the text. Like, we see the Hollywood letters, except it says Athens. And I'm just like, oh, I okay. I got it. We get the, we get the premise. <laughs> That's how I felt, Megan. Honestly, I felt it was kind of like a little too much. Uh, no, I agree. It also could have just been the Hollywood sign and it wouldn't have mattered. Right. I would be like, ah, it's set in Hollywood. Okay. But then they'd say Athens in the play. So, like, I get it. Megan, I don't know how many productions I've seen where... It's like, this is L.A., and then they're like, Venice. And you're like, you just said it was L.A. Yeah, so I don't really think it matters. My belief can be suspended. Then the movie cuts to all of our characters and tells who they are next to a picture of them. This is our first dramatis personae in a movie that we've watched. And let me tell you, I am happy when things do this. I am happy to put a face to a name and more movies should do this. It doesn't quite matter as much for a Midsummer Night's Dream because I already know all the characters and what their roles are, but that's because I know this play. I don't think this sort of quirky, dramatic persona would work for a tragedy, though. You're correct. You would probably have to do it with a little bit more nuance and respect. Mm, like a noir film, and they're all different pages of a police report. Yes. Wait, are you referencing something? No. But that'd be cool. I just like my ideas. Okay, well then, Megan, write them down, and we can make a movie together. We then cut to Duke Theseus's mansion. So... Act 1's whole order is a little mixy-mixy in the movie, which is fair, because it can be. Like we were saying before, it doesn't need to be completely linear. They're able to move things around so that it's more enticing and dramatic than, you know, having to wait for one character to come on stage and have a reason for them to leave the stage, etc. So we meet Duke Theseus. He's a film producer get it his name is duke theseus he's not a duke that's his first name so he's looking for a movie to show after his wedding and he gets some ideas through a voicemail answering machine usually the things that they say on the answering machine are said by everyone's favorite character who everyone remembers from a midsummer night's dream philistrate in act four of the play but we're moving it up to here and we're cutting down philistrate's lines to about four things that he says which is fine he's kind of a useless character sorry any philistrate fans we learned that hermia in this production is one of the actresses of his studio who is like a regular lead Her last name is Puppet, which is real funny if you know the forest fight scene later in the play. Wait, so is his name Aegeus Puppet? 
That's so bad. Unless it's her stage name. Oh, okay. So that's possible. Yeah, that's fine. Her... Puppet is a bad stage name, though. Oh, yeah. But they do this intro for her in this way that's very reminiscent of Zoolander when they go to the awards show and they're like, Han Solo. And they show like red carpet stuff of him and they're like, oh, it's Hansel. He's so hot right now. And that's very much the vibes I get from this Hermia puppet red carpet intro. This is the moment that when I watched this film, this is what stuck out to me. So while we're introducing Hermia, the film posters that they show her on all contain lines of text from other Shakespeare plays that aren't A Midsummer Night's Dream, which A, shows to me that these storytellers have no restraint, and B, that they obviously love them some Shakespeare. Because if you're pulling these quotes, it's obvious to me that you know these plays. And see, they're my new best friends. Yeah, let me just go down my list for these posters. So, yeah. So in quick succession, we see three posters. One is for a movie called Dancing Days, which is a line from Romeo and Juliet. A poster for a movie called 3,000 Ducats, which is, of course, a Merchant of Venice quote. A poster for The Rest is Silence, which is Hamlet, and An Improbable Fiction, which is Twelfth Night. And then, in addition to that, we see a magazine cover of Hermia, where it says, Every Inch a Star, which is a King Lear reference. And then at the bottom of the page, it says, Infinite Variety, which is Antony and Cleopatra. So we've just run the gamut of about one, two, three, four, five, six Shakespeare plays in the course of like less than 10 seconds. So my mind exploded. We see a coaster on Duke Theseus's desk, which says, Heavy lies the head that wears the crown, which is Henry IV, part two. So we meet Demetrius and Lysander, who are both in love with Hermia right now. And she wants to marry Lysander, but her father wants her to marry Demetrius. So we got to know a bit more about Demetrius. And what do we learn about Demetrius? He really likes Shakespeare quotes from other productions. In, again, quick succession, he says, Put money in thy purse, which is from Othello. He again says 3,000 ducats. In addition, he also says Antonio Bound, both from Merchant. He says, Maria, a stoop of wine, which is from Twelfth Night. He says he's the best actor in the world, comical, tragical, pastoral, comical, whatever. That line is from Hamlet. And he says, kill all the lawyers, which is from Henry VI, part two. I don't know why he says all these things, but I don't like him very much. I kind of dig this because usually in productions of Midsummer, you don't really get to see why there's a difference between Lysander and Demetrius. Oh, I can tell you. Demetrius is businessman and Lysander is dirty boy. Well, yes, but in the text itself, the only reason that Aegis gives is that Lysander wooed Hermia without his consent, which sucks in a modern day interpretation. So you just kind of have to find a reason why they're different. And so they made Demetrius kind of suck hardcore. 
But then it's funny because Aegis is still like, ah, oh, yes, I will use the ancient privilege that I have. And I'm like, ancient? Ancient privilege? Ancient privilege of Hollywood? What's this ancient privilege you got? Well, we do get to meet Lysander, who is a dirty boy photographer. And he has like a Austin Powers, yeah, baby, yeah, act like a tiger photo shoot introduction. And he also likes Shakespeare. <laughs> He says, give me a lean and hungry look, which is from Julius Caesar. He makes three Hamlet references one after another. He says, smile, smile. Who's my rogue? Who's my peasant? Which I kind of adore that one. That one's the greatest one I've heard so far. And he also says, saw not the air with your hand. Which I also really love. I have to say... I spend a lot of time in films watching people who aren't talking because I just really like secondary acting, and Hermia is killing it in this scene. She has so much emotion. I just love her, and she is saying a million things without saying a single word. Would you say that she's all that? (laughs) I love that they cut the lines about her either getting killed Or going to a convent if she doesn't marry Demetrius. So what is this ancient privilege then? I don't know. I do love that she asks the question of what's the worst that could happen to me? And basically all that Theseus does because he doesn't mention getting killed or going to a convent is he just holds her hands and just goes, think about your decisions, (laughs) which is kind of funny and good. Because it's like, I'm not going to answer your question. Just think about it. Well, because like in this, he's not an authority. He's just her boss, kind of. He's just like, well, I don't super care. But your dad really does. Here's a weird thing about adaptation. Why does Aegis bring this to Duke Theseus? (laughs) Uh, Threaten to fire her, sir. (laughs) Like, I think that's like the idea. But like... No one would do that. My other question is, what's Aegis' role here? Grumpy old dad. What else do you mean? I meant like in the world. Like what's his father? Job? His angry job is father. father. Okay, Megan. He's one of the mad dads of Shakespeare, though. I mean, I would like to see that movie, Megan. The mad dads of Shakespeare. Yes, <gasps> all of the dads who just get mad about their daughters. The final character we need to meet of the lovers is Helena Maypole, which again, real funny if you know the fight in the forest later. See, this one sounds more of a last name, though. This sounds like something someone could have as a last name. Yeah, Puppet's not a last name. Yeah, Maypole could be. That's why I'm starting to think more and more that Puppet is her stage name. Thankfully, though, she doesn't reference Shakespeare in her lines. She doesn't have any... We see her at a typewriter because she's a screenwriter and also a hipster because who has a typewriter in a modern day L.A.? Another Shakespeare reference. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a liar. She types in star-crossed lovers, but that's a Romeo and Juliet reference, so we're going to add it to the tally. I really do like this intro, though, because we see her starting out writing with a cup of coffee and eating a muffin. And as time progresses, we see her take out a bottle of wine and start drinking that. And she almost knocks over her wine with her typewriter as she does the ka thing. And she cries about her work and laughs at her work. And so we just get to see her be like 
a really emotional individual, which is a good thing because Helena is an emotional character. The next scene has a really interesting transition because we get a view of a script that says Echo Park exterior, and then we're at Echo Park exterior, but it's just very much part of this meta-theatrical, this-is-a-movie thing. And we do see Hermia dressed up like an actor would if they didn't want to be caught by paparazzi. I do like that they have the scene separate from the conversation with Aegis and Theseus because in the actual text of the play, Aegis and Theseus basically come to an agreement of, you're going to marry Demetrius. Demetrius, I need to talk with you. Let's go. And they leave Lysander and Hermia together alone, which like, why would you do that? Hey, Shakespeare, that doesn't make any sense. I don't want you to marry my daughter. You're not allowed to marry my daughter. Goodbye. Enjoy, you two. So I'm glad that this is different. She's also not with Lysander. She is texting him. And I love it, except I don't like the little bitmojis that are part of it. Yeah, they're weird. They're weird, but I love whenever cell phones are used in modern productions, because that's always the problem people have with modern productions on stage. They're always like, this wouldn't be such an issue if people had cell phones. So I like when productions go, now this is helped because of cell phones. Also, like, what are the problems of Shakespearean comedies and tragedies except for miscommunication? You know what happens a lot of times with cell phones? Miscommunication. Text is hard to interpret, and you can just do that. They also do this thing where lines get thrown over the image of the scene, and that happens a lot in this, but since it's like a love talk between two characters, I instantly flash back to like anime music videos and like Buffy the Vampire Slayer music videos that are like just fan videos of like and this is how they fell in love Willow and Oz or Naruto and Sasuke and it has like the lyrics of the song over the video so that people are sure to realize just how much they dig each other and how much it fits the song and that's totally the vibe of this moment and I like it so we get to the part where Hermia is typing out her whole, oh, by Cupid's strongest bow, etc. And she's interrupted by Helena. And Helena does her whole, like, thing where she's like, cool, great, Hermia, I'm glad you're so great and I'm not. This is great for me. And they show it just really beautifully. It's just very casual and you feel this strain between friendship and rivalry, which is exactly where the characters are right now. And it just comes across really naturally, and you see Hermia delete that whole thing and just send, like, a thumbs up, basically. I love that so much. Basically, everything that Lysander and Hermia usually say in the actual play is taken out of this scene and put elsewhere or given in a text message but then deleted this whole moment that's supposed to be between Lysander and Hermia is all mixed up, too. I think that's interesting. I don't know what it says about anything, but it is interesting. I mean, I think it complicates the situation more. There's another thing that I think this interpretation kind of messes with this line for me. 
there's the line that Helena says, throughout Athens, I am thought as fair as she, talking about Hermia. And typically in productions, it's like, well, yeah, they're two girls. They're just two girls. But with this, since she's a screenwriter and Hermia's an actress, I'm like, I'm pretty sure a majority of Hollywood thinks that the actors are more attractive than the screenwriters. And so... I mean, they're actors. It's right. It's like the one job that you can get fired from because of how you look. Right. So it's just... I don't know. It, I don't feel like that line works anymore. Well, also, it's kind of weird because the person playing a screenwriter is an actress who is very pretty because she's an actress. It's a weird thing with the context of what they're trying to do as a concept, plus that their actress is playing the roles. We do get to see on her phone a picture of Helena and Demetrius, like, happy together. And I like that because in the play... We just get to hear about it. Yeah, we hear that they were happy together. We hear it one-sided, too, which makes it so you're not sure if it's true. Mm -hmm. But this is physical proof that, yes, they were happy together. And no one needs to really talk about it too much. She does mention it still, but it doesn't need to be said as strongly to convince us. Next, we get probably the most famous monologue in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is Helena's monologue. Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. Therefore, is winged Cupid painted blind. Yes. However... In this production, at first, she starts it out after Hermia leaves, like she normally does, speaking to herself about the situation and how sad she is. Next, we see that the reason that she's here, besides talking to Hermia, is that she's giving a poetry reciting. And that's where the lines about love being blind are placed. I think this changes this monologue a lot, obviously. Yes. Taking it from a solitary, contemplative moment to a performative piece in front of an audience. But it is a performative piece. See, that's the thing, is because it's a play. Typically, I think if you do this production right, she says this to the audience, because Shakespeare is supposed to be connected to the audience. Yes, correct. But there is no audience in film. Yes, but in film you could just have it be solitary. And a lot of times things that would be said to an audience are just turned into monologue, set alone or just internal monologue. But this is brought to an audience that we can see. Mm -hmm. That's not us. It's very strange. And I feel like it changes it, but I don't necessarily know how because... I like this feeling that you are feeling. I think that there's this middle ground of diegetic and non-diegetic thinking in which this production wants us to be. Now, to define those terms, for those who don't know, diegesis basically says what is happening in the world of the play, and non-diegetic things are things that are happening in the world of the work. So, like, examples are music. Yes. At the beginning, the music that's played over the montage of Athens... That's non-diegetic. No one in the world of the work is hearing that. They do make some of the monologue an inner monologue. uh, Yes. Which I'm thankful for because if she was at a poetry reading and started being like, so Demetrius used to like me, guys, but then he saw Hermia and now he likes her, I'd be like, what? They cut two lines and as he airs doting on Hermia's eyes, so I admiring his qualities... 
And then she goes into love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind. So because of the fact that they make it about poetry, basically these two lines are her setting up why she loves Demetrius, despite the fact that he doesn't love her. But you don't need that if it's a poem that she's saying out loud. Right. And like, we're getting enough context. Shakespeare does this thing, which I appreciate usually when plays do, where he makes sure that you understand the important plot points by repeating them in -hmm. different ways. And that's good because then you don't miss them. But one, this story is so well known, it's not necessary. And two, we're getting all these visual cues that movies are able to give us that tell us that she's still interested in him. So we don't need the constant repetition. I know we mentioned this earlier, but I want to drive home how much I love how this movie plays around with the tools that film can use that theater cannot. For instance, this voiceover that she has, which you could do on stage, but it wouldn't work. And it's also not a tool that theater uses regularly. And it's not something that could have been used in early modern effectively. Yes. In addition, we get to jump around in time and space, which you can't do in theater effectively. And you get to do montages that basically show symbolism that relates to the work that you can't also do in theater. So I think that when we talk about adaptation, I think that this film really adapts it well to the medium it is in. You couldn't take this and put it up on a stage. No. Absolutely It would make no sense. So we're going to try to do this by the scenes of the play, since this is an adaptation. So we'll tell you when things are moved around, but just to kind of keep ourselves aligned. So Act 1, Scene 2 begins with an ad for AFI, the Athens Film Institute. When I first saw it, I went, oh, is this just a weird ad so that you can throw in more Shakespeare quotes? It's to provide context of where we're going, but Megan, essentially, yes. The Athens Film Institute actually does have a real-world counterpart, the American Film Institute. It's a real thing. It exists. It's called AFI. The logo that they use in the movie is very similar to the logo that AFI uses in reality. But the video that we are shown to lead us into the first scene with the rude mechanicals has all the world's a stage, which is from As You Like It. The voiceover says that the Institute holds the mirror up to nature, which is Hamlet. And strut and fret your hour upon the stage, which is also from As You Like It. But I'm going to count that as one reference because it's from the same part of As You Like It as All the World's a Stage. And then finally, they do Oh, This Thing Called Learning, which is from Taming of the Shrew. A very obscure line from Taming of the Shrew. We had to look this one up. It's not a really famous line, but it's there. So it didn't hit me until they showed bottom that I was like, oh, duh, there's students here. And this is the guy from the beginning. Yes. Because it's bottom. And he's looking for what seems to be the first meeting of a student film that he's going to be working on. And he goes into a room and he's looking for room 2B. And we all sigh. And he walks into the room and sees a person and says, 2B? And there's a pause. And I went, oh, 
as if to imply or not to be. And then, of course, the guy in the room went, not to be. And I went, oh, you have played me like a fool. In addition to this happening, the film that they're watching in this not to be room is what looks like a black and white footage of A Midsummer Night's Dream. We see Bottom with a donkey's head on the screen, which kind of foreshadows this Bottom's predicament later. But also now I'm super confused because Midsummer is a thing in this world. Yeah, the play of Midsummer Night's Dream exists in the world of this Midsummer Night's Dream. Megan, this is just all about that meta theatrical shit we've been talking about. I know, but I just, my brain can't handle it. That's fair. He finally does find Tubi, which is right next door. And he enters, and there are the other mechanicals. But oh ho, it is modern, and Flute and Peter Quince are both women. Yeah, more girl roles in Shakespeare. Just as within the play, Bottom doesn't seem to show respect for Peter Quince, who is the writer, producer, director of this film. And Bottom is constantly interrupting, talking over her, just kind of flaunting himself around and undermining her, which, when Quince is played by a female, strikes even harder than it normally does. Because normally you're like, oh, come on, let the guy talk. But when it's a woman, you're like, ah, patriarchy. I hate the way that the film industry is and how students are and society. Bottom is someone who nobody said no to his entire life. Also changing Flute to a girl is interesting because Flute is the one who's supposed to play Thisbe. And typically in the play, Flute is male and everyone goes, oh, ho, ho, a male and a male need to play opposites each other. But in this, you remove that pretty dated, oh, cross-dressing is funny, oh, two guys kissing is funny aspect. And they make it more modern and don't rely on that kind of cheap humor. I feel so sad when Flute asks, who is this be a wandering knight? Which usually I'm not sad about, but the fact that she's just so hopeful that she gets to play a wandering knight and then is told by the director, you're the woman that Pyramus loves. And it's like, oh, you're getting the girl role because you're the girl here, which is just like Bernhardt Hamlet. But Bottom could play Thisbe, as he is always eager to tell us, because Bottom wants to play everyone, because Bottom is the person I hated throughout my whole life. Though, to be fair, I will give him, when he's like, oh, uh, tap, tap, let me play Lion 2? I'm like, oh, okay, that was kind of cute, because it's just, like, very understated, instead yeah. of usually how that's played, is he's, like, roaring, and he's like, I will be the lion, and this, he's just like, oh, actually, uh, me? This is exactly how, like, these boys get powers, that they're overconfident, and then they're like, but I'm a little cute, too. And you're like, no, they're a little cute. Here's the thing. I hate Bottom. Oh, yeah, he's awful. That doesn't change by me saying, this one line was done differently, and I like it. I know, I just have a lot of feelings about these dumb straight boys. But this dumb straight boy does keep... The ship that I've always had, which is Peter Quince slash Bottom. No, Quince, you could do better. Quince can do way better, but Quince is like, come on, and puts her hand on him, and he like looks down at the hand, and there's just like a pause, and I'm like... Sexual tension. Ooh. 
I kind of can guess it in the world of the play, but in this adaptation, so they're all students who it seems have never really worked together, or at least they've never worked with Peter Quince, because Peter Quince doesn't even know the names of the two brothers. So, why do all of them think that Bottom's so amazing? What has he done? Was he in some other independent small film or something? Why do they think he's great? Because as we've seen, he's not actually great. So what did he do to make them all think that about him? So, like, in the play, they're mechanical, so they're laborers. Right. They're blue-collar workers. And they all know each other. Yes. And so when Bottom comes in with confidence, it's like, well, confidence means everything. But in a world where they're student... And they're film students, so they should know the difference between good and bad acting. I mean, they should. The fact that all of them think that he's great? Even Quince? Because Quince cast him? This is the first time I've ever doing this on this podcast. Okay. Are you ready? I'm about to say words that everyone will hate hearing. So when I played this role... Alright, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) So when I played this role, I had it so that Flute didn't like Bottom, was jealous of him, and was like, he's not that good. And I think that there is a way that you could do that in any production, even this one. And I would love that. Why don't they? That's my question. What has he done to deserve their love and admiration? Maybe they're all freshmen. And he's not? Maybe? Maybe they're all freshmen and he's not. Or maybe they're just all freshmen. And so they're still operating under like... Oh, Confidence well, is the key? Yes. Or like, oh yeah, Bottom was the cast as the lead in all of his high school theatrical productions. And now he's here. Okay. He was a big fish in a small pond, but they're all from small ponds. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. However, when Bottom leaves the scene... He doesn't walk out the door. He walks into the editing bay, and Marquez thought that was really funny. Do you think that was on purpose, or do you think that I, was an accident and they kept it? I think that was on purpose on the actor's part. What I really do wish, though, is that they showed him entering the editing bay and realizing it, and either making an awkward exit out the front door, or making the decision to say, no, I'm going to stay here and act like this is what I wanted all along. I wish that was done. That would be so good. (laughs) So before we get into Act 2, Scene 1, they put in this transitional scene that is full of a bunch of different parts from the play because they can move them around and they kind of just have this fast-paced ending to Act 1. Yeah, so it starts out with Helena discovering a newspaper that basically makes fun of her, and we get another Shakespeare reference here, Greatness Thrust Upon Her, which is a Twelfth Night reference, but she uses this gossip magazine that basically talks about her and Demetrius's relationship to finish off the Helena monologue from Act 1, Scene 1, in which she makes the decision to tell Demetrius of Hermia's flight. Then we get a quick shot of Theseus and Hippolyta, and he says the whole our nuptial hour draws a pace, which is also from Act 1, Scene 1. And then we go into what I like to call split line hell, where they take Lysander's The Course of True Love Never Did Run Smooth monologue and divide it amongst all of the lovers. I tried to see if there was some sort of thematic reasoning among the splits. I mean, 
kind of like they all seem like things that each one would say, but I don't think there's anything important enough for me to re-say any of it. So I'll just say some of the things that happen during the monologue. So Lysander gets the course of true love never did run smooth as a tattoo on his arm, which I hate. We see Demetrius looking in the mirror, getting ready to also go to the woods. And he's got red eyes and he's like a demon and I don't get it. Okay, whatever. He's wearing the necklace that we saw in the very beginning scene, that arrowhead crystal. And Hermia leaves a note addressed to her daddy. We don't know what it says, but she leaves it. And everyone's going out into the forest. In which Lysander's tattoo will become infected because he's in a forest and then he dies. Oh, it is a tragedy. So then we move on to act two, scene one. The movie titles this act Spirits of Another Sort. Also, like, they show act cards, which I appreciate as someone taking notes. Also, oh, look, meta-theatrical. Yes. We see Puck for the first time. He's a surfer boy. Mm, he cute. Yeah, he's cute. He also has tattoos that have no Shakespeare lines on them. Which I appreciate. I think that was just the actor's tattoos. Let him keep them. Yeah. So this Puck is hot. I'm immediately about this. Because he's just kind of like lackadaisical, which is like how fairy should be. And I just like it. He's also hot. Like his character his how now spirit line it said sexily. is a sexy come on to the surfer chick, which like I've seen ones where Puck's like flirtatious, but this one's like, I know I can get it. Yeah. Do you want to get it? And then they have sex. During the whole, oh, thou art Robin Goodfellow. Mm. Thou speakest the right. I am that merry wanderer. But that's right. through them having sex. And that's a choice. Listen, don't like this. By don't like this, I mean Marquez just doesn't really like sex and things, and so he wasn't a fan of this. Also, man, I wish Puck was gay, but he's not. Hey, he could be. He's not. He could man. be bi. He, he can never be bi. flirts with anyone. Oh, male they persuasion. only put him around women, which is bullshit. And Oberon. That's my ship. The thing is, he controls Puck. Oh, okay. Consent is not real there. You know what? That's fair. You can never be true of that consent. You know what? That's fair. I withdraw my ship. I understand it. Where is my gay ship in Shakespeare that doesn't have questionable power dynamics? The answer. Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night? Even then, questionable dynamics. So she runs away after sex for a reason. I don't know if we know why. So she runs away after sex, and he does his, oh, whither wander you? Like, where are you going? I love it. I love the, how these lines are repurposed. It's great. As much as I feel awkward about watching people have sex, I'm having fun. And then after some choppy psychedelic editing, he's transported to the fairy world through a cut. It's red now here. He's in more traditional puck clothing, kind of like a earthen hipster fairy hipster guy. And this leads into Marquez's theory number two, which is that the fairies have the power of magic through filmmaking tools, which I will hereby title the power of the final cut. So then Puck does his room fairies. Here comes Oberon. And I go, wait, is the girl here? Was the girl a fairy? But he's looking at the camera. Am I a fairy? Megan. The girl was a fairy. But she doesn't look like the fairies that are there. I know. 
it's is called... she a third fairy who wasn't part of that but she was just the sexy time fairy of titania's right. court it doesn't matter it... she's a fairy am i a fairy he's looking at the camera Megan, do you want to be a fairy not in this okay then no you're okay. not a fairy here but it's all a part of the thing the whole thing of the movie Oh, that thing that we talked about at the beginning? Yes. Oh. <laughs> it's it's all part of my theories, which is that this is all amorphously filmmaking. Oberon shows up, Titania shows up. They're like, hey, I hate you now. I hate you now. I know that you cheated on me with Theseus. I know you cheated on me with Hippolyta. And I'm like, yeah, we know this part. And then they show flashbacks to each of them. And their affairs. And I'm like, oh, once again, visual proof of what happened. And in the flashbacks, Oberon and Titania are in normal clothing. Yeah, they're not fairies. Yeah. They're, they're like masquerading as people or they just are people. Like, I don't know. Megan, go back to my theory about the... Oh. <laughs> I've also noticed here that the big three fairies are the only people of color in the film. Oberon is black, Titania is Japanese, and Puck is Indian. I don't know what this says about the fairies, and here's always my problem with the fairies being... Because they're not human, and it's doing the whole POC as inhuman Well, because they're not human, they're cruel. They're also terrifying in this. Yes. So it's like, I don't know what that's saying. I mean, yes, people of color are very powerful, and white people should be afraid of us. <laughs> but also, it's weird because this is exactly what I mean from our Bernhardt Hamlet episode about casting women in male roles and that no matter what you do, you're saying something. This is the exact same thing. If you are casting people of color as Shakespearean characters, unless you are completely doing the whole thing. We're like... It's not just like certain specific characters are people of color. It's like half the cast is people of color. And then you're like, sweet, uh, sweet, cool. <laughs> Good. It's just a diverse but, cast. But when you do something like this in which a certain world is all people of color. But it's not all because the fairies the, are the, white. The small time fairies are yeah. white. But it's the big time fairies. Every fairy with a name. Is not white. To, to me, it's that says something always. I don't know what it says, but that's a choice that you made. Because... You didn't do colorblind casting for this. And that's less I'll probably comment on it. it. I just wanted to be clear that it is something that is in the movie. Titania goes into her whole speech about how their fight has caused like the ruin of the world. And they do cuts to images of what she talks about. But it's really interesting because there are three that specifically stood out to me where... She says fogs are coming in and they show pollution and she says floods and they show the devastating aftermath of a hurricane and then angry winter shows melting glaciers. I love this. This is what we picture when we think of nature revolting. We think of the damage we've done to the environment, which is a concept that Shakespeare didn't have at all. He wasn't worried about global economic powerhouses destroying the environment. Because the what? Yes, because that didn't <laughs> exist back then. And also, he was just basically London bound. So he really didn't have any commentaries on larger political 
interest that much. It would just be, there was a drought this year. There were floods. And it's interesting because Shakespeare always connects unnatural things happening with greater forces. If a king is unjustly on the throne, horses go mad. If Oberon and Titania are fighting, the world goes crazy and there's a huge storm. These larger forces are what cause unnatural occurrences, whereas we in the modern day have science and we have proof that these bad things are happening. I like that they showcase these things in the movie just because we have the context. The very ending of this scene is just very interesting. It's the section where Oberon is telling Puck about Cupid's arrow that fell and hit a flower and that flower now has magical properties yada yada megan yada yada is exactly what that monologue is <laughs> yes but it's split between live action as the whole movie has been but backlit by the sunset so you can't really see puck or oberon's features at all and animation for when they show cupid's arrow and the flower I'm more interested in the backlit bit because that's just very unusual in film. You always want to see faces. You're able to get close-ups. You want to see expressions. You want to see all this, and they don't. You get small hints of it, and I know it's because you're supposed to be focused on the whole uh, Cupid's arrow, yada yada, but just aesthetically, I love it, and it's beautiful, and just after seeing all of this devastation... You're forced to look at a sunset, which is gorgeous, but we also know that sunsets are made more gorgeous by an overabundance of pollution in the air. So it's a really interesting transition from the last major monologue and this moment where, you know, we're focused on this quiet plot and this apparently animated Cupid's bow flower. Add animation and location shooting to our list of things that film can do that theater cannot. Granted, all film is facsimile. I think that's a good point to be made. All film is fake because it's light that is projected on a screen, whereas most theater is real, but most theater is tangible and real that you can see and it's happening in the moment, but is also all put on. I think that there's something really interesting about the fact that both theater and film have this dance of real and not real. Because most people say that you can't show death effectively on stage because you know that the person is not dead because they get up and then they bow at the end. Whereas in film, you can more realistically show someone is dying through cuts and through special effects, as well as they don't get up and bow at the end. It's more confined to the world that the film is showing you, whereas theater, there's much more suspension of disbelief required. And it always comes back to reality at the end. Yes, but you also get real people on stage doing real things with theater, whereas film, you can cut and you get take after take after take until somebody does it the way that you think is right and that decision on which take is decided upon is decided after the actor has already done their job and it's in the editing bay and they make the decision there and you got photoshop editing stunt doubles 
everything. There is so much fakeness in film to create a realistic looking world, whereas theater is the exact opposite. I don't know. That's just my take on theater and film. Thank you for tuning in. Where were we? We are at scene two of act two. This is where the lovers finally get to the forest and Lysander and Hermia are riding his motorcycle and his motorcycle dies and that spurs on his line so quick bright things come to confusion, which is great. Once again, great repurpose of the line. Great new meaning. I love it. I'm going to say they do a thing where they keep repeating sections of shots and going back and like the same step three times and things like that. And I am going to vomit. That's because the world is being affected by the world of the fairies and their power of final cut. This is where I start worrying that your theory is correct. You know that this is a film and the movie doesn't let you forget that it is. (laughs) Granted, I don't think it works here because it makes me, like you, nauseous. (laughs) But there's a reason for the season. A method to the madness. So Demetrius is driving behind the motorcycle a bit. And He's got a nice car. Yeah, he does. And then Helena in her worst car is following him. And she's trying to call him. And she's on his phone as do not answer. And ouch. Yeah. Like, I get it. But like, it doesn't seem like there was really a clean break. But like, man, okay. But he answers her. And then her whole, my heart is true as steel lines are just her pleading on the phone for him not to hang up, basically, so she can say her piece. But he fucking hangs up on her. He does. But she's literally right behind him, so boy, you're not getting away. Yeah, but I think it's just funny because in the scene, in the play, he doesn't have a way to hang up on her. Right! He doesn't have a way to stop her talking. And he really doesn't have a way to hang up on her anyway, because he's to the forest, and when he parks, she parks. Yep, she is right behind him. And she does her whole, I'm your spaniel thing, she walks like a dog. Oh, girl. I'm like, honey, please. Get up, have some more respect for yourself. Which I do blame the movie rather than the character, because I'm like, I can interpret this character how I want. Girl, have some more self-respect. But he walks away, he leaves, and then she does her whole we are not made to woo moment. And, and he it's, turns around. He turns around and it's so sad. And he starts walking towards her and she puts her arms out and then he clicks the lock button on his car and turns back around and leaves. And my heart, it breaks. Oh, it's so good. And then she's like, wait. And she, well, she says lines. But she takes off her high heels, and then she goes into her trunk, she pulls out boots, and then she doesn't put them on, and she just runs holding the boots. Put on your boots. You're running on sticks and stones. There could be glass here. They could break your bones. Oh, this is where Oberon views Helena and Demetrius's fight. And I'm like, oh, this is spoopy. And like, in theater, you can't really get that same visceral, you're being... stalked like prey sort of thing while in the film we can see him right there in the trees and they just don't notice him yeah and in theater it's usually like oh he's off stage left but they're all the way stage right and they just don't notice because they're so far away on that open stage or he's hiding behind a pillar or a fake rock yeah but there's a very different feel that the film is able to give it which 
I guess I didn't really notice in very many other productions. It might be because of the red light and his just kind of presence that he has that I was like, oh, this is kind of scary, even though he sees it and goes, oh, I want to fix that. <laughs> and it's not something menacing. Then one of the worst things I've ever seen a Helena do happens where during her lines, she grabs Demetrius's hands and puts them on her chest and then puts them up her skirt. Yo, yikes. That is assault? Yeah, bad. Don't like that. I have never disliked a Helena so much for an action. And my heart breaks as someone who wants to love the character of Helena. Yeah. I don't know how I'm supposed to forgive that when she never addresses it. Yeah, I was really on the side of this Helena like the whole time. And then when she does that, it does totally give you pause. Because I'm like, you can be as heartbroken as you want. He can have left you as spur of the moment as possible. You could be as confused as ever. You do not do that. Yeah. And listen, so usually in productions, I feel bad for Helena because she got spurned by someone that said that he loved her. But when you go to this length to get someone back, you are violating their right to say no. So, okay, so I don't want this to be a whole sexual assault podcast. So we'll move on because the movie does and they never bring this up again. Yep. We cut to... Hermia and Lysander. And they're setting up a blanket to sleep on because, I don't know, they're sleeping in the forest. They just have a blanket. They don't even have, like, a sleeping bag. Listen, it's never explained why they're sleeping in the forest. Fairy magic, because the play tells them that they need to. See, but at least, like, in the play, they're like, we'll sleep here tonight, and in the morning we'll go to my aunt's house or whatever it is. Yeah, but in this one, his motorcycle breaks down. So he's just like, guess we sleep here tonight, baby, with this giant blanket I guess I brought for some reason. If you're just going on a motorcycle to your aunt's house, why are you bringing a blanket? Right. Um, <laughs> He wants to have sex with her, and it's very obvious. And she has her, like, lie further off moment, which makes a lot more sense when there's implication that he wants to have dirty, dirty wood sex. And she's like, gross, no. <laughs> and I prefer that, even if I don't like sex in shows, I prefer that then when people are just like, I'm gonna cuddle you. And she's like, lie further off. And I'm like, this mean why? <laughs> <laughs> Cuddles are good. Because that was what my high school production did. He just like wrapped his arms around me. And I was like, stop, lie further off. And I'm like, you love him. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. This this production is really good at everything feeling modern and it's casual. Effort effortless. It's effortless. And all of the meaning comes across still. Yes. Oh, well, the actors are good at saying the words and making you understand what they're saying. I'm so happy. They're not even like celebrated Shakespearean actors. No. Because like, you don't have to be. That's the thing. You don't have to be a celebrated Shakespearean actor to bring meaning to Shakespeare's words. Well, here's the thing. Shakespeare is speaking English. It's not speaking old English. He's speaking English. The language is pretty similar to what we have today. The only difference is references. So if you cut those references, they are just saying things that you would say, but in a lyrical text. And sometimes there's a thou thrown in there. Yes. Sometimes there's outdated stuff. But if it's you just It's the same understand... as if someone was doing something set in the 20s. Yeah. And they throw in like Jake yeah. as a word that's not a name. What it really boils down to is that if you take the time to look up 
the references and the words that are outdated, you can understand what Shakespeare is saying. We cut back to Helena. She's alone, and she deletes her phone background of her and Demetrius. And in a modern context, that is a very emotional thing to do. That's super big. <laughs> like, she hasn't moved on and is doing that. She's doing that for what's best for her. Yeah. Because like, she knows it's done. If you have a person or an animal as your phone background, the only reason you would change your phone background is if you got a new picture of the person, you broke up with them or if the animal died, and you don't want to look at them anymore because it makes you sad. Literally, only like changing the photo or a huge emotional changes will cause you to delete a background picture on your phone. Oh, I also would like to state for any audience listening, delete photos of your ex, no matter what kind of photos they are. If they are not dating you, you A, don't have the moral right to keep those photos. And two, it's emotionally bad for you. Unless you guys had a, like an actual good breakup. Yes. Then yes. like keep all those photos, whatever. Yeah. Unless but like maybe you don't have still. like 700 on your phone. Like yeah. bring it down to the best five. Yeah, only if they're still your friend. She then decides that she wants to go back to Athens because forget this forest, nothing good is going to happen here. And I love this because in the play, she's like, fine, I'll go back to Athens. And then she just goes to bed. But in this, she's like, fine, I'll go back to Athens. Siri, back to Athens. And Siri's like, Siri is not available here. And it is perfect. Yep, love it. I love every time a cell phone is used in this movie. So Puck goes to get the flower that he was told to by Oberon. And then they show a plant guide photo? I don't... Who has this? Who has this plant guide? He's not holding a plant guide. And, is it my plant guide? And obviously, the one flower that you need is the one that's glowing. So why do you have a plant guide? Oberon and Titania sing a little song. This is the Villabai with Lullaby yeah. song. And then we cut back to Puck and Oberon, and Oberon's like, this is the flower, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got it. And it's great. It's one of the few moments where I love when someone intersperses modern reactions. Those are very tricky to do well, and it does it really great. And he walks away, and I'm like, you don't got it, though. You don't got it. We know this play. And then the film says act three, but it's not. It's still act two. Because it's still the same scene as before. Yeah, Titania's Bauer exterior. I still like seeing these little script shots. Yes. And they're like, oh, you did the wrong one. You put the thing on the wrong guy. I said Athenian garments. You should have known. And I'm like, all right, but Oberon, in this production, the two Athenian men are dressed extremely differently. You could have been a lot more specific. Yeah. One looks like a businessman and one looks like a dirty hipster. Yeah, they're very different. So just saying he looks like someone from L.A., what does that mean? So an answer to this that could be made is that fairies are fairies and they don't recognize any human garb. But this play's got a weird fairy human context thing going on where I don't think that this works. They're completely differently clothed. You are correct. In different productions, I could see it being like, a human's a human. I'm a fairy. I've seen a bunch of productions where they look almost exactly the same. And I'm like, yeah, I'd mess up. So we have two more great Siri lines. The first 
Helena talks about her tears, and then it finishes the salt tears line from the play, and I'm like, ha ha ha, very funny. Wait, so Midsummer Night's Dream does exist in this world, for sure. That not-to-be room was playing a Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. And then she says she's like a bear, and it's like, here's what I found on the web for grizzly bears, and I laugh. I yeah. like Siri. Siri's a great character. Uh, my Add favorite them to the cast. My favorite Shakespeare character, Siri. <laughs> yeah, and then Helena trips over Lysander. He wakes up. He's like, oh my god, I love you. And he's just cute. He looks like he's spellbound. This is one of my notes. I did a quote from Megan during the uh, watching of this movie. She says, that branch is doing a lot of the work. Well, because he like leans on it, and it's like, a barrier between them and he's hanging on it like he'd hang on her if she'd let him and it's just really nice and he does the like puppy dog eye thing with his like hands under his chin supported by the supported by the branch and i'm just like man this is so cute and he looks so unlike lysander she has to know he's under a spell she's got to I just like that you like the branch so much. It's a good branch. <laughs> and then, you know, Helena runs off and Lysander runs after her. And then we go to actual Act 3 movie. Excuse you, this is where Act 3 is in the play. And we see the mechanicals. And they're in the forest filming their film. I would like to note that the moon of the sky in the last scene becomes a lighting rig for the mechanicals in this scene as a transition. I just like pointing out symbolism. Because it's like the lantern, man and the moon lines that are cut from this play. And that here is a lantern. It's a light for a film production, but it's still a lantern that's equal to the moon in terms of providing light. This scene is super short, but I have a very visceral reaction to it. So... They're doing the thing, Bottom's being very bad, as always. Bottom runs off because he's supposed to in the scene. He's wearing a shirt, that's the Batman thing, but it's his buttman, and it's actually like a butt cheek with a thong, and Puck is like, ha what a great idea. And then when Puck is supposed to turn him to an ass, he makes his head an ass. Instead of a donkey. Like a ass. butt. It is a butt face, like Buttman on his shirt. And so Puck, what, saw his t-shirt and was like, that's a great idea. And then did that, and now he is, quote unquote, an ass? That's basically the that's scene. That's the scene. They run away. Oh, yeah, they they're scream. like, ah, he's an ass. He's transfigured. And then they run away, and I'm like, oh, fair. Fair, he's a butthead now. I'd run. And then we're on to scene two of act three. So this is the longest scene, I believe, in the play proper because after this scene happens, it's all just, like, resolution. This is, like, the climax of the play. So it starts with Hermia waking up from a nightmare. And her lines are like, Lysander, take this snake from my breast sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly it. But we see her dream because it's a film, so we can see what she's dreaming. And it's Lysander yelling at her in the forest, and I can tell that it's something in the future. So, one, she's, like, having a prophecy. Mm-hmm. Two, What's the snake then? Well, Megan, she's having a dream inside of the fairy world. So maybe she's accessing this power of the final cut. And so she's having prophetic visions of future scenes in the movie. Then we get away from that because she goes, oh, I got to go find him. And as she runs away, we find bottom ass face man. 
and he stumbles upon Titania's chamber, and she's like, ah, you, amazing. And it's all echoey and terrifying, and I like it, but it's terrifying. And she brings him in to come love her. He says the line that's usually a good pun, where in which he says nay. And he nays it, but he still nays it in this one. But he has a butt head, not an ass's head. So the joke doesn't work. It doesn't work. They put in random fart sounds sometimes. Which is funny. Which is funny. But why does he neigh? Yeah, that doesn't work. Also, she's like, I'm going to have sex with you now. And he says nothing. And then she's... Well, actually, she doesn't even say that. She just puts him on her bed and starts having sex with him. And he says nothing. Listen. A, give bottom enthusiastic consent. Because, listen... She's if, hot. Yeah. She's so, hot and he's desperate. I've seen so many productions, most, where he's just like, yeah. yeah. Uh, whether he says it or not. But, like, it's very obviously enthusiastic consent. Which here it's not Here really. it's not because he doesn't have a face that he can emote with. And he says nothing. Yes. So I'm like, once again, guys. Listen, Midsummer is weird about consent in general. But they could do I it know. without yes. that. You, Megan, you can always change the text. You don't even need to change text. You could just have him have a face and go, yeah. Yeah, I know, Megan. Megan, you can change so many things. Why did they do this? I don't know, Megan. And then Puck comes in and does, like, the camera motion with his hands. Which is also gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, excuse? And then I'm just like, oh, is he actually taking photos with an Invisic camera? And yeah, he is. He's got the power of final cut light exposure, Megan. He could take pictures with an invisible camera because he has the power to transmute light into physical things, which is all that filmmaking is. What? What? Theory confirmed. Okay, but here's the thing. He brings these physical photos to Oberon, and this is one moment where I go, I do not like this. Yes. Because in the play, that doesn't exist, and he says... She's fallen in love with an ass. Come look. Cool. Ha ha ha. Moving on. In this, it's here's physical lasting proof of something that we did to her and a spellbound affair. So she also can't have consent because she's being hypnotized basically through yes, this. Yes, correct. So they, like, they both don't have consent. Neither of them have consent. And it is now a physical thing that my immediate thought is cool. So you have blackmail against her now. Yeah. And I viscerally hate it. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, I, can, I have no counterpoints to this. You are right. Like it, it might be meaningless to fairies. Cause they might be like, yeah, we remember everything forever mm-hmm. or like something, but I'm like, I, I just don't like it. Yeah. We thankfully cut away from that to Hermia. Who's found Demetrius on her way looking for Lysander, and she's like, hey, where's Lysander? And he's just like, I hope he's dead. I'd rather feed him my dogs. I hate that guy. And she's just like, hmm, that's mean. Give him to me. And I just, like, want her to be mad. She's such a good actress, and she's just like... Yeah, she should, like, punch him. I want her to do something physical, but I feel like they keep her from doing that because they want Helena to be the more physical, like rash one i guess Mm -hmm. but like there are people and if i was a person and this guy i was like my boyfriend's missing and he was like yeah i hope he's dead i would deck him 
So of all four of them, I think that Hermia has the least to do in the text proper. And by having her just accept this, I think it further pushes her into that territory of she goes along with things. She has less agency because really what she does in the play is love Lysander, follow Lysander into the woods. Get confused that Lysander doesn't love her. And then is fine by the end. But she doesn't, like, act on anything. She just gets upset about things. Like, things happen to her. I want to make a statement that for the future, we talked about it before. Agency in Shakespeare works is difficult. If you have high agency, I want to make it clear you do things. And if you have low agency, things happen to you. And for all of this play, things happen to Hermia. She doesn't do anything. Whereas Helena does things. She makes the decision to tell Demetrius about Hermia and Lysander's plan. She follows Demetrius into the woods. So she's doing things. And Lysander comes with the plan. He's doing things. Hermia, things happen to her. And Oberon is over there watching. Just like, man, I gotta fix this. I gotta get my ships back together. They're gonna be canon. I don't care. He's just straight shipper trash. Mm -hmm. And... I dig it, and also I'm like, boy, this isn't middle school. <laughs> yeah, see, I think that this version of Oberon is straight shipper trash, and it kind of rules. <laughs> I like it because there are so many Oberons that because of the Titania thing, he seems like he's just doing things to fuck with people. Yes. But this one, you genuinely see him be like, no, like that one should be with that one, and that one should be with that one, and then everyone's happy, guys. But wait, I just want people to be happy. They're supposed to be together. It's destiny. <laughs> we cut to Aegeus waking up from slumber. He has a vision. He has a nightmare, just like Hermia did, with a vision, just like Hermia did. So maybe they're just prophetic. Maybe they're li- they're a line of like soothsayers. I don't think that's it. That's my theory. (laughs) Megan's theory number one. The puppet family are soothsayers. Okay. I just like to state that it is totally unnecessary to show Aegis where they are and what they're doing. Listen, Aegis, Hippolyta, and Theseus could just show up at the end. You don't need to show a middle scene where he wakes up and discovers that she's gone. You can just assume that if he shows up and says, oh, she took him when they show up later in the play, that's all you need. We cut back to the forest fight. We see security cameras, basically, and it's Pucks. And he's just got cameras set up around the forest so that he can watch it with a smartphone. Like, this is the real world, and he's just live streaming it. And uh, I love fairies using modern technology. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's very good. And Oberon's like, I want to watch. I want to watch my ships. And he's like, no. Well, he's got the power of Final Cut, Megan. Demetrius falls asleep. Then Helena comes in with Lysander. She accidentally trips over Demetrius sleeping. He wakes up, falls in love with her. And then Hermia shows up. And so this is where the big fight happens. Yeah. Where Helena is completely confused. She thinks that. Hermia is a part of this that everyone is playing a trick on her. Which I think the movie makes... It it shows it really well. It shows it really well and like I would think the same thing as her because especially with that thought, 
When she says you fashion this false sport in spite of me, you hear Puck laughing in the distance, and it's completely diegetic because just about all of them, like, turn and react to it, like, who's laughing? And I'm like, yeah, if I said that and then someone laughed, I'd be like, there's my proof, you there's assholes. A- yeah. Is someone filming me and this is some candid camera bullshit? I love it. And then they do the moment where Helena's talking about Demetrius and like, Demetrius was saying that I'm amazing and I'm beautiful and he likes it. She's like falling for him again. As she says all the things and then she like remembers that she thinks this is all fake and she snaps out of it and like shoves him and I'm like, oh, so well done. So good. I love it so much. And then she turns on Hermia and then Hermia starts getting mad. And that's when you see Helena like, yeah, I got you. Girl who won't even shove Demetrius when he says he wants your boyfriend dead. You're finally mad. And she starts having fun. And I start having fun. This is where their last names start making no sense. Because the reason why they call each other Puppet and Maypole is because they're supposed one's supposed to be taller and shorter. But like we've already have the context that it's their last names. So are they calling them by their last names? Yeah, it's like you may pull you and it's like you Smith you. <laughs> yeah. You Johnson. You Marquez. Oh, Johnson means penis. <laughs> <laughs> you Johnson. It's like you Marquez. <laughs> you Charlotte of Love. Wait, it's a thief of love. But like, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. Though I will state one of my favorite things that someone calls someone else in any Shakespeare play. Acorn? You acorn. I just like it. I want to call people. I want to call people acorn. I have a note here that says Oberon, King of Hash, because he's constantly smoking and playing with smoke. Yep. He smokes cigarettes a lot. I think there are weed cigarettes. There are weed joints, Megan? I think they're marijuana cigarettes. (laughs) Oh. So. Because of the psychedelicness of things and stuff. And yeah. But he does use basically what is a pot variation in order to fix the problem of the flower because he tells puck take this and use it to trick demetrius and lysander to follow you off oh yeah 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 the the part where he mocks their voices mimics them makes them think that he's them he does do it by filling the air with smoke and i can see that being connected to marijuana because marijuana gives you a hazy feeling. Also in this scene where they're following Puck around, Lysander almost trips on something, but he stays standing. And I want to say thank you so much to A Midsummer Night's Dream from 2017 for breaking the trope of people in Shakespeare movies falling for no apparent reason. Oh my god, that happens so often. Now's the time when everyone's now asleep and Puck's going to apply the remedy for the flower so that everyone can fall in love with their own respective people again. Yes. Which I'm like, okay, but if you apply the remedy to Demetrius... He's not going to love Helena anymore. He's just not going to like Helena, so we're still back to square one then. And he comes on up, and he's singing Peter and the Wolf. He's just humming Peter and the Wolf to himself, and I'm so happy. I love this choice. I love Peter and the Wolf. It's a great song, and I think it's a great choice. Why is it a good choice, Megan? Okay. This is the biggest thing I've wondered, because you were so happy when this happened, and I am so confused as to why. You have to explain yourself. So, here's my theory, at least. Okay. Peter and the Wolf is a musical piece 
that showcases an orchestra to tell a story. There's a duck and a cat, and the cat goes after the duck, and then they're like, oh, no, and the boy's there, and he's like, ah, no, duck, cat, go away. And then the father is like, why are you doing that? There's a wolf in the forest. What if a wolf got you? And he's like, Psh, there's no wolf. And then the wolf comes, and he's like, oh, no, it's coming after the cat and the duck, and they're in the tree. And then he tricks the wolf, and it's like, wow, he did it. And then hunters come, and he's like, do you want this wolf? And they're like, yeah. Anyway, there are all those little characters. Each of those characters is shown by a specific motif played by a specific instrument. Yeah, light motif. Yes. Okay. But they're not just light motifs, they're specific instruments playing it. So one character is a clarinet, one character is a trumpet, etc. So the way that Peter and the Wolf is usually used in education is to show the individual characteristics that each instrument, instrument contains on its own. Got it. So he's putting them all back to their individual selves on their own as they are meant to be played. And it's perfect. I think you have spent too much time thinking about it. And for that, I love it. Because what is this podcast if not us thinking about something too much. Puck while applying the remedy to the lovers. Here's Megan saying, but wait, that just means that Demetrius is going to hate Helena again. But when he goes to apply the remedy to Demetrius, we see that around Demetrius's neck... Is that crystal arrowhead from before? And then we get a flashback, which shows our two sets of lovers... Having, like, a nice lunch on a picnic table. A double date, because they love their respective partner. Yes. And a strong gust of wind blows Hermia's shawl thing off. And we see that Lysander has a broken leg here, so he can't go after it. So Demetrius goes after the shawl, and he comes across the bed of flowers that Cupid's arrow hit. And the arrow is still there. And so he picks up the arrow, breaks off the head, and he has a little bit of that juice on his fingers. And then Hermia comes to him to receive her shawl. And then he turns and looks at her. And so it turns out that this whole time, Demetrius has already been under the spell of the flower. A- that's why he has red eyes in the beginning. That's why he's had this necklace the whole time. We didn't even connect it because it was shown through montages. And we didn't have any reason to connect it. But they've shown us this this whole time. I am literally about to burst. I am so in love with this. I have so many problems with one thing I said about like when productions are just like, and Demetrius loves her again. And I'm like, why? Well, in I most don't, productions. They just don't have them apply the thing to his eyes. So he's uh, non-consent forever. Right. And so I'm just like, I hate this. This is terrible. I don't like this play. It's not a comedy. It's a tragedy for him. And then they do this and I explode. It's good. It fixes every single problem I've ever had with Demetrius's whole plot line. Because also, like, why does he just suddenly hate her? Yes. It's never covered in the play. They're just like, sorry I did that, babe. And I'm like, what? That makes no sense. You're, you're a terrible person. But also, you have no consent, so I feel bad for you. So everything's terrible. But in this, it's good. And this 
goes back to my point of using your medium in service of your adaptation. A flashback is a common tool in film and difficult to pull off on stage. They laid out specific details through close-up shots that you cannot do on stage to his eyes and to the necklace. So using the medium of film, you are able to fix the fault of the play. And that's amazing. This is my favorite part of the movie. I almost screamed. We both freaked out. Just now, I literally pulled my shirt over my head because I couldn't contain myself. It's so good. (sighs) Okay, but we have to move on. So we're getting towards the end. We're now to act four, scene one. This starts with a really cute moment where we go to the mechanical's house and they're all sleeping, except Quince isn't. I I don't know why they're all in the same house. It's just that they were all out searching for... So then they all just went back to Quince's house and just crashed? Yeah. So Quince is up still and trying to research, like, how to break curses, how to end hexes, and it's cute because I'm like, I mean, yeah, what else are you going to think it is? Yep. It's a modern day show, so yeah. you just search things on the internet yeah. instead of like just worrying about it and think that they're bewitched by a devil. And just be like, well, hopefully I'll see them someday. Yep. And then we cut back to Bottom and Titania, and we see Bottom's real butt. At the same time as his face, when she's like, and I will kiss thy gentle cheeks, and I'm like, which one? <laughs> <laughs> But they're like sleepy, and she's like, mm, "I love your cheeks." And they do like a pan cut to Oberon and Puck watching them, and Bottom snoring and farting at the same time because he's a butt. Yeah, and it's a really kind of funny beat between him farting and uh, Oberon saying, "Her dotage, I do begin to pity a little," which is always where I'm like, "Yeah, Oberon." Like even when he's just a donkey head, I'm like. Yeah, Oberon. (laughs) And so he decides to end this little game that he's playing. And once again, this film does something that fixes something that I have a huge problem with in the play. Yeah, so when he wakes her up, it cuts to both of them in not fairy clothes and normal clothes, and they're just waking up from a dream in reality. Bottom is not next to her. Because the play always has that, oh, methought I was enamored of an ass. And he goes, look where thy love lies. And then she sees him and she screams and she feels disgusted with herself and her situation. And he kind of laughs. And I hate it. Because I'm like, I wouldn't forgive him after that. On one hand, I don't like it because it's like, I ruined your consent, but I won't tell you about it. Listen, Oberon's still bad. Here's the thing. Once you take away someone's consent, there's no fixing it. Yes, correct. So it's either you add an insult onto the injury. Oh, yeah. Or you just hold the injury. Yes. So I'm glad that they did the lesser of the two evils. Yes, yes. She wakes up and he's just like, hey there, we're okay. Like, eh. There's no way to fix this 100%, but I'm all for in adaptations, you lessening the bad problematic shit of Shakespeare. Then there are some fairies, and they say the Lord what fools these mortals be line. That's Puck's line. And I'm just like, they took his thing. This also is a montage here. We see the morning after everything's gone down. We see Theseus, Hippolyta, and Aegis on a car ride to seek out our lovers. So they get to the forest, and Aegis is like, ah, it's so terrible. 
she should be with Demetrius, who obviously loves her. And it's like, actually, Demetrius is over there with Helena canoodling. And Theseus is just like, well, that's her choice. Glad they're happy. And I'm just like, what is this? A good male movie exec? That doesn't exist. So much for the reality of this. (laughs) One of the weirder parts is that everyone kind of remembers what happened. And so they just kind of tell the tale. And I like that it's told without dialogue through just like gestures, gestures, because there's no lines in the text itself that all of this happened. So that's once again, using your medium in service of your adaptation. Because the text is like, we'll have to discuss it It later. later. And then they say the lines about this is a strange tale, they say in a different scene. Yeah. And so while that's happening, we have Helena and Demetrius off to the side. And they're sitting on Lysander's motorcycle, which I'm like, yeah, that's not yours. Yeah, that's not yours. But they have their whole forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's a quiet aside, which I've seen plays attempt to do. But the thing is, a stage is small. Yes. So there's no way that you can fully remove them. While in a film, you can see that they can't hear the conversation that's being had between Aegis, the Duke, and Hermia and Lysander. And they can't hear Helena and Demetrius. So they're basically in two separate rooms. Yeah. And they're able to have a completely private moment of getting back together. Yeah, it's good. So then we cut to Bottom returning home. Except it's mixed up again. Because they want to also do... Because that's where they do the Oberon Titania morning. Yes. They do it all... While Puck's doing yoga and being excited about the morning lark. Oh, he's super excited. You're like, woo! He goes, woo! And Oberon and Titania are like, ah, all those lovers are going to get married today with the Duke. They haven't announced that yet. How do you guys know the future? Because they're fairies. When they're sleeping, question mark. Then we do see Bottom hitchhiking in just the robe that he's in naked. And he gets picked up by Duke Theseus, Hippolyta, and Aegis. Basically, he just talks excitedly about the film. Once again, just in gestures. Yes. You just see them driving, and he's, like, play-acting it. Just Yeah, and they look really embarrassed because he's naked. And then he kisses Aegis. For some reason. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> he gets dropped off, and... They are about to drive away, but then Duke Theseus does a cool movie executive thing where he rolls down his window and hands him a card without showing his real face. And then he realizes that he was picked up by Duke Theseus, the film producer. And then at the bottom, it says... A fine tragedy. tragedy on his business card. Which is a line. Yeah. And then he goes back to the house and everyone's like... Bottom! Like they're supposed to. And he is super cute. This is one of the times that I'm like, this actor is really good. And he does that like, oh no, it's such a long tale. Like, oh, I'll never be able to tell you all. And then he's like, oh, I'll tell Tell you you everything. everything. It's just so cute. And that's the end of that scene. So we have weddings. Before they showed the couples, I was like, what, Lysander gonna be wearing like a tuxedo t-shirt? No, he's wearing a formal shirt rolled up to be a t-shirt but here's the thing the rolls on the sleeves are so small that it's literally obvious that at most this could have been like a three-quarter length shirt so i was annoyed because i was like ha 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 but you didn't actually just use a long shirt and roll it up 
that's me complaining about costumes again. Also, has sweaty pits. I don't know. I liked that. I like that because it's realistic. It's realistic. I'm like, it's LA. It's, it's LA. Hot. It's hot. And you're nervous. You were just told you couldn't marry this girl, and now you're marrying her. Yep. Oh, Quince gets super amped up because Bottom's like, we're going to show this to Duke Theseus. Duke Theseus. And Quince is like, it's going to rock, basically. But it's super cute because everyone's expecting Bottom to do it. And then Quince is like, ah! And then Bottom's like, oh. More Bottom Quince shit. Quad? Quince? Nope. Quadum. Megan? Quadum? Nope. Qu- Quadum. Nope. Bince? Bince. Bince. There's nothing there, Megan. Bunce. Mechanical ship. Steamboat. Oh, okay. Steamboat's pretty good. And then the movie says it's Act 5, but it was already Act 5, guys. Oh, it's been Act 5. The wedding was Act 5, guys. So they have a little, like, getting ready montage of getting the film prepared. And they're playing a song, and the song is the lines from the play that they cut from the movie within the movie. Yeah. I loved it. I was like, hold up, and I paused it, and I was like, they're talking about the lantern guy. Yeah, I was like, this is the... This, this is the wall monologue. This is the guy. And then they complete their film because they're going to show it to Duke Theseus. So they all travel to Duke Theseus's mansion where everyone just got married and everyone's gathered in the private theater. And Quince comes up and does that like, if we offend, yeah, it's okay. We didn't mean it. Mm-hmm. And that makes so much more sense to me in a thing where it's... A film. A film. Something that, that's like, already completed. It's completed and the Duke has not seen it at all and like hasn't seen a script. Yeah. Well, like I kind of assume in the play for some reason that the Duke knows more about yes, that's what because, he's going to see. That's because in the play proper, the mechanicals play has already been approved to be shown before Duke Theseus at the wedding. That's why they're doing it. Yeah. Well, in this, they just so happened to hear about the play from an unreliable narrator. Yes. And Quince is like, oh, I really hope that they know what they're about to see. Yep. Before it starts, we do get our final outside Shakespeare reference, which is there is a dog in Duke Theseus's seat, and he says, out, out. And then the dog leaves, and then he says, damn, Spot. Which I would like to state, the joke was already made by Nomeo and Juliet. Because we know every person has seen that film. I'm just saying they took a joke from an inferior film. They might not have seen that film. And then we get the film within a film, which is normally the play within a play. And it's Star Wars. There's a scroll. They're all in Star Wars outfits. The Leo wig is put on over hair that is just out, and I go crazy. Okay, so here's why I think they did this. I think that this is a commentary about how Star Wars uses the hero's journey and basic storytelling elements to create its own thing, and that connects the Greek comedy tragedy with Hollywood because Shakespeare uses... Greek stories and older stories to make his new plays and that's basically what Star Wars did and everyone copies Shakespeare and everyone since Star Wars has been released has tried to copy Star Wars in film so I think that that's what they're trying to go with the thing is here's my problem it's not funny 
Here's my problem. There's a Chewbacca. Nine doesn't like Chewbacca. I don't like Wookiees. Nine doesn't like Wookiees. They're like, ah, the lion is a Wookiee. And I'm like, cool, turn it off. (laughs) Megan did not like this. This is a strange turn in our viewing. But as the play within a play goes on, and it's terrible. It truly is terrible. But the thing is, again, it's not funny. This is my least favorite part of the movie. Because usually the play within a play is the funniest part of the show. Yes. And this is just like cringe humor. Yes. Where... You might awkwardly laugh because it's so cringy. But I get secondary embarrassment from watching this. They show that they're all like kind of digging themselves in their seats while the Athenians laugh at what they're doing. I think it removes a level of humor because when you perform it live, the mechanicals don't really know that the Athenians are making fun of them. Right, because they're busy. They're putting on the show. But when they're watching it and the person directly behind them is like, wow, that sucked. This is... Ouch. This hurts more. And so it's not as funny. However, they do a moment where when Pyramus dies and Flute fawns over Bottom as Thisbe, they get a little bit more serious and... The Athenians pay a little bit more attention to it. And like you get to see Helena and Hermia are like, oh. And the best part of it is like Flute is like pretty proud. But like you still kind of get that like she's nervous that they might laugh at her. Mm -hmm. And then you see Bottom like, oh shit, I sucked. And Flute's actually good. And I'm like, yeah, Bottom, you suck. And then Duke Theseus turns to Aegeus and just goes, give me her name. I really yeah, like that. I love that they want her. Yeah. And so it ends and they're all like, yay, that flute person was good. Like everyone's just kind of sitting there and then you hear a slow clap begin and it's because Puck is there. He's just in the back clapping and I'm like, what? Megan, he's got the power of final cut, remember? He can appear where he wants to in the film. And I would just like to say, He is providing a happy ending for the Mechanicals by starting the slow clap, thereby initiating mob mentality for everyone to clap for them. And I kind of really like that because he's like, no, it's a comedy. We can't have them Can't have them walk away sad. Yeah. So let's just give a clap and everyone will end this happy. And then they're all like, yay. And then Quantum kiss. Steamboat. Steamboat kiss. They kiss. And I'm like, my ship. I'm sad it only happened because they're a guy and a girl, but... That's fine. It happened. And then we get a final dance sequence. Oh, this line always bothers me. Theseus says that they're going to have nuptial celebrations for a fortnight. Two weeks of dancing and singing? No, thank you. I hope some of those are like, and today we relax with some cheese boards and watch Netflix. Which I, yeah, I mean, I'm okay with like a two-week vacation. And no one else is invited. It's just us in our own rooms, but we are saying it's celebrating. Yes, I hope that that's it, because if it's two weeks of just dances and parties, no, thank you. So everyone's dancing with their person, including Steamship, and then... Steamboat, man. Steam, including Steamboat Willie. And then the fairies are dancing with the brothers and the mechanicals. And he just is dancing with flute. Titania and Oberon are, there. are musicians. Yeah. Which they are, the actors are as well. 
So And then Puck just left, I guess. Puck doesn't want to be a part of the dance. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you'd come just to watch the film, but all right. And then Titania winks at Bottom and Bottom's like, ha, wait. <laughs> and I'm like, ah. Uh, and the lyrics that they are singing are the fairy's final lines in the play because they come to bless the weddings of all of these couples. And so they like say some lines, but instead it's the music that Oberon and Titania are playing. And I would also like to note that Oberon is wearing horns in the scene because Bottom literally cuckolded him. And that's in Shakespearean language. When you are cuckolded, you wear horns on your head. That's how you know that you were cuckolded. It's not the modern interpretation of cuckold, which is just a beta male shitty thing that I hate. It's the old cuckold, which means it's just somebody slept with your wife. Then I scream. I go under the table. I stand up and I die. And Marquez gets to tell me how he's always fucking right. I'm so... Megan, you... Megan. Megan. She left. She's gone. She left her microphone. Let's tell the audience. <laughs> okay. So, as Oberon and Titania are singing their song, it starts to rewind, then play it as though somebody is editing the film itself. And then we cut to an editing bay for the movie A Midsummer Night's Dream. We see a bunch of stuff on the walls that shows that this is the film that we're watching. And then we see at the editing bay is Puck. He is there. My theory is correct. He has the power of Final Cut. I'm head over heels in love with this. We get to see that he was the fingers that were typing out exterior Echo Park in between the scene transitions. The flower chart that Megan was confused about. I'm so mad it was his. He did have it. It was in an editing bay. Yes, is like a flower chart showing like what the flowers should look like basically is like here are the options that you can choose from for how it looks we see like location scouting and it connects to my thing about the play being the dream you see the actors as actors for the characters yep you see measurements you see set design elements you see all of the scripts you see the athens over hollywood sign you see a color schemes for each scene and character. You've got the butt makeup as a makeup piece. And Puck gives the final monologue of the play in which he addresses the audience and he stares directly into the camera to give it. And over the monologue, we get to see production bloopers and outtakes and just actors having fun. That I actually really like. Yeah. And it's like, we put on the show for you. And... If you don't like it, then we're sorry. But, you know, we had fun. Like, it's basically like an apology. Like, we had fun doing this. We all came together. It takes a lot to put on something like this. And I think it connects to the joke we made at the very beginning where we said that this production was kind of like a dream. And that it is making art like this is dreamlike in a way. And also, this production was done so quickly mm-hmm. in compared to other productions with such quality. So it's like, hey, sorry, we just want to do this fast, fun, and do it. And, and I know, like, when I am done making a 
theatrical production like Shakespeare, after you're done, it does feel like a dream because all you have really are the memories of the production. It kind of all melds together into just a feeling and bits and pieces. You don't like have a specific play-by-play memory of the rehearsal process and everything like that. You just kind of have bits and pieces, stories, important moments that you remember. And it feels like a dream after you're done with a production. I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah. Give me your hands if we be friends is asking for applause. Yeah, it is. They didn't do that. They didn't take that meaning. They took it as hold my hand. And that makes no sense. I'm sorry. I was actually kind of let down at that because especially since this is like, I know that film isn't something that people necessarily clap at, but film is still art and you can clap at art. My mother applauds in theaters. I have applauded in theaters. It's performative, and that's what that line means. It doesn't make any sense to be like, I'm showing you this film. Will you hold my hand if you like it? That That's not what that is. And that is my opinion on that. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's a perfectly valid point to make. It doesn't really work for me because Puck is speaking directly to an audience who has just seen the play when he says that in a theatrical production. And this movie has been so good about showcasing this as a film. And you can't really ask for forgiveness for a film because it needs to get edited, released before an audience can see it. So like, it's not like, hey, sorry if that was bad. You know, we just did it raw one time and there might have been mistakes. Yeah. No. So basically, this adaptation is able to play on the original text while also putting fresh contemporary concepts in it. The fairies have the power over the real world like artists do on a film production. They do make mistakes. They play with stories like fairies do with humans, viewing them, laughing them, but ultimately hoping to give them a happy ending. And despite the weak and idle theme, as they put it, I think Midsummer just aims to make everyone happy at the end, despite all of its flaws. And I think this film succeeds in that. So to wrap up, I think a great quote to summarize this production is, though it be but little, it is fierce. (laughs) Thanks, Megan. Yeah. Okay, so... I'm going to go to the numbers. Ooh, numbers game. Yes. So I have tallied up all of the references that were made in this production to other Shakespeare plays. We have one reference each of the following plays. Romeo and Juliet, As You Like It, Othello, Taming of the Shrew, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, King Lear, Antony and Cleopatra, Henry IV Part Two, and Henry VI Part We have two references to Merchant. They are separate, but they are the same reference because it's 3,000 ducats. Yeah. But I'm going to count them as two separate references because they were separated. Yeah. There are three references to Twelfth Night. There are nine whopping references to Hamlet because people love them some Hamlet. That adds up to 24 outside references There are probably more in there. We discovered some 
after we had watched it through a quick view of the references we had already come across and we found a couple. These references cover 13 different plays, not including Midsummer. So that's a lot. I just wanted to showcase those numbers. Yeah. Now that you've done the math, I want a couple more numbers from you, Marquez. Okay. What would you rate this play? I would rate this movie two fixed male characters out of all of them. (laughs) How would you rate this movie, Megan? I don't really have anything funny to say. Like, I just think this is like S tier 12 out of 10. Like, I would make up a funny thing, but like, I just want people to know that I really like this. Yeah, it was a really good adaptation. And a really good movie. It was enjoyable. You could understand things that people were saying. All in all, great film. And I think with that, we are ready to press stop on A Midsummer Night's Dream 2017, directed by Casey Wildermott. And we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlo. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Avant Bard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at Avant Bard Pod.